0: Pulling the Strings, a podcast series about coercive control, brought to you by the Violence, Abuse and Mental Health Network, and hosted by me, Dr. Kitty Saunders,
1: me, Anjali Kaur, and me, Dr. Charlie Pepitas. In this series, we, your three hosts, will be talking to academic experts, authors, practitioners, and coercive control survivors we'll be holding critical conversations to improve understanding, break down taboos, and expose the true extent of coercive control.
0: In this episode, we will be exploring what life looks like for survivors of coercive control beyond their experiences of abuse. We'll be exploring some common experiences and challenges survivors face as they move on from situations of coercive control, factors that can support or hinder a survivor's journey towards healing and recovery, and think about how we can better support survivors beyond the immediate crisis phase.
2: To help us explore this issue, we're joined today by survivor author Deanne Hardy. Deanne, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself and your
3: work in this area? Thanks for having me. I'm Deanne Hardy. I'm a survivor of coercive control and abuse, and I'm a survivor author. I'm also the founder of the Inner Glow Revival Project, where I share my experiences and insights about recovering after abuse.
1: Thank you, Deanne, for joining us. It's really nice to have you here. So we wanted to start this episode off by thinking about recovery. Or rather, we might say healing and flourishing or thriving after experiencing coercive control and abuse. And we say these things because the term recovery itself is, it's actually massive to unpack. It's huge. And the idea of recovery is something that we often see as the stated goal of interventions. But what recovery actually looks like is something that's very much still up for debate amongst researchers. The term recovery actually remains quite, I think, underexplored in a lot of the literature. So we have a bit of work to do when we think about this idea of recovery. Now, a recent article from the Journal of Family Violence by Carmen and colleagues that we've linked in our show notes explores survivor definitions of long-term recovery and they argue in that paper that survivors should be at the forefront of defining recovery so that the concept actually resonates with them and their experiences and in that study they surveyed just under 700 women who self-identified as being in long-term recovery from intimate partner violence asking them how they define recovery So let's
0: take a look at what came out as important aspects of defining what recovery is from survivor perspectives in this study. The first was survival and safety. So even decades after the abusive relationship had ended, safety remained an ongoing concern for many women. There's a false assumption that once the crisis phase is quote unquote over, the survivor is safe and can get on with her life. But unfortunately, the recovery phase can have many challenges and dangers, and these are often ignored by the sector, which is much more focused on the crisis stage. The second is gaining freedom. This was actually the most commonly discussed aspect of recovery by participants. Freedom to be themselves was just as important to the women as freedom from the perpetrator, from his control and the negative impacts of his abuse. Freedom to discover and be themselves was also important to women, as many of them had been so conformed to the perpetrator's control over them that they were no longer even sure of their identity and what they liked or disliked. The third was a better life. This was almost as commonly discussed as gaining freedom, so kind of second in line there. Aspects of a better life identified by the women included happiness, enjoyment, fun, homemaking, sleep, peace, calm, self-confidence, self-esteem, social support, a sense of purpose, hope and a future. The three most frequently nominated aspects of a better life in order were identity and a sense of self-worth, social support and a sense of belonging and happiness, enjoyment and fun.
2: One of the other interesting things survivors in this study discussed was the very possibility of recovery. All survivors in the study agreed that talking about recovery was really important, but they had different views about whether recovery was possible or if recovery was an outcome that was ever achievable. Some survivors felt that recovery was both possible and that they had recovered, whilst others felt that recovery was more of a journey, one that would be ongoing and lifelong due to the scars and impact from the abuse they had experienced. Deanne, I wondered what your thoughts were around this conceptualizing of recovery for survivors.
3: I think that's really, really interesting. And I completely agree with the idea of survivors playing a big role in defining what recovery actually is. Um, I also think it's completely understandable that there were differing perspectives from survivors about whether an idealized idea of full recovery after coercive control and abuse is possible. I mean, I do think that recovery is always going to be a journey and seeing it as a journey can be extremely, extremely important. Seeing recovery as a journey can really help to keep you motivated because whatever recovery is, it is a long-term thing. It, it takes time, much, much more time than many people would imagine. Recovery can also seem extremely daunting, and I think if we think about it as a journey, we can break it down a bit and make it more manageable. The only way to move forward on any journey is to take one step at a time, reflect, and then take another step. Then you'll find that over time, it's possible to look back and see how far you have come. When you stop to reflect and take stock of where you are, your achievements will seem worth celebrating, and they will inspire you. To take the next step. So, so seeing recovery as a journey can be very helpful in that sense. I mean, obviously, recovery is hard. It's, it's really, really so hard. It's certainly one of the hardest things I've ever had to do and, and I'm still doing. But I like to take maybe a slightly different approach to it. I think I see recovery as a journey because it's a path that I'm walking that isn't about any single milestone or a series of checklists that I'm frantically trying to tick off along the way, I I rather see this journey more as a kind of lifestyle, a new way of life even. And I'm looking at this as a really, really meaningful and beautiful journey that I'm taking control of. I also wanted to say that I think that those two ideas that are mentioned in the study, gaining freedom and gaining a better life, those two things are are very, very intimately connected, and they are so, so deeply rooted in reconnecting with your with yourself and really investing in yourself and building your self-worth and confidence back up again. and And I believe that's really a very, very crucial part of recovery.
1: Thanks so much, Diane. That was really insightful. I think that survivor definitions of what recovery is are are really helpful. But let's also take a look at what long-term recovery actually involves and think about that a little bit more carefully. In our episode on coercive control and mental health, we made reference to a realist review that I conducted along with other members of the section of women's mental health at King's College London. And we're going to go back to that paper today because I think it ties in with what we know about long-term recovery in the current intervention landscape. And the paper is linked again here in our show notes for you. Now, in that review, we looked at 60 review articles of psychosocial interventions for female survivors of intimate partner violence. And I think one of the most interesting findings that came out of that was that women who do not feel overwhelmed by pragmatic issues or psychological crises often seek support in building the skills to establish a flourishing and meaningful life beyond their past experiences. But this aspect of recovery remains a very missing focus in most interventions and services. So I think this really echoes the findings from The first study that we were discussing in this episode, actually.
0: And what the review really tells us is that mental health interventions for survivors of violence tend to focus on outcomes that signal recovery in terms of mental and physical health. They seek to detect positive incremental movements on psychometric scales and reports of a reduction in stress or poor mental health symptoms the focus of interventions is rarely to bring survivors to a place of thriving and positive mental health beyond the baseline expected for their context. Findings from this review about what works to improve survivor mental health and well-being after experiencing violence and abuse suggest that one recovery programs or interventions should focus on activities that help survivors practice self-kindness and self-compassion Because these are the foundations that can support survivors to regain a positive sense of meaning in life. And two, programs and interventions should include activities that improve self care and hope, as these are essential for long term flourishing.
2: Deanne, your book, Alive Again Positive Stories About Life Beyond Trauma, is all about that recovery process after the immediate crisis phase. Do you have any thoughts around what we've just been discussing in terms of the findings from that realist review based on your research and
3: experience? I definitely agree that there is a crucial element missing here. So many survivors find themselves having feelings of inadequacy because they get all the professional green lights around their mental and physical well-being, all those baselines and, and so on. But, but they find that they are just not fully happy or back to their old selves. They feel as if things are not as they should be but they have no clear roadmap for how to find their way to that place of where they should be. So they often end up believing that they can't ever be happy again, or and then they find themselves re-entering therapy or support groups where they just rehash or unpick the trauma to see if they can find that elusive key to this so-called full recovery. But oftentimes, that's not the solution at all. However, there's very little in the way of support or encouragement to look outside of those trajectories to find solutions. Also, I think there needs to be a lot more support and understanding of how much this is a learning curve for survivors. There's a sense that once we are healed, we can just jump back into the way we were before we entered life with the abuser. But that is not always the case. It needs to be more accepted that we are irrevocably changed. So there needs to be the freedom to explore what the new self wants or needs to find happiness and fulfillment. And that in itself can be an entire separate journey. I really want to pick up on the idea of the importance of self-compassion and self-kindness in long-term recovery. It's, it's very common to have Developed a whole host of false beliefs about yourself from being in an abusive relationship. Some of these beliefs can make you feel like you are bad, that there's something wrong with you, and that you don't deserve love or success. And so, of course, self-forgiveness is very, very important. Self-forgiveness means that you let go of harmful beliefs and recognize that they have nothing to do with you or who you are as a person. The beliefs we have and how we treat ourselves have a massive, massive impact on our well-being. I also wanted to pick up on the idea of self-care because that is very important. Recovery isn't just about healing wounds. It's about reclaiming the power and strength that was taken away through manipulation and control. One of the most important steps of recovery is changing the way you view yourself. Uh... I really believe there needs to be more awareness and understanding of how very important this is if if survivors are to truly thrive. Thanks so much, Deanne. I think that
1: was all really interesting to think about in terms of what came out of that realist review and how we should be thinking about those things. It would be great, Deanne, to hear a little bit more about the book that you've written, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what's in the book and what the motivation was behind writing the book.
3: Through all my reading, I realized that there were two big gaps in the literature. There's a lack of books by survivors for survivors, and there's a lack of books talking about long-term recovery from a non-therapeutic point of view. Now, that's not to say that there are no books like this just that there aren't enough and we need more. So I want to fill that gap. Uh, We've spoken a bit about the gap around long-term recovery, and that's the issue that's at the heart of my book. I talk about the fact that there is an immense difference between actually being alive and just living. To be living, we really just need to have a pulse and breathe. To actually be alive is so much more. And to be alive is also a conscious choice, a decision you must make every morning when you wake up. So how do you do it? How do you go from the state of living after abuse to really being alive again? And that's the question that my book grapples with. Throughout the book, I share inspiring survivor stories and give advice about how to get your life back and to truly be alive. Uh, Whether it is your beauty that you need to admire again, uh, your past dreams you need to connect with, or the inner peace you've lost and, and need to find again, I really believe that it is all possible. And hopefully this book is at least one small step for anyone reading to believe that it is possible and start making that happen. As a survivor myself, I also wanted to write a survivor-led book. So so this book, first of all, gives a short insight into the stories of 10 different survivors who who were kind enough to share their recovery stories with me and then to workshop how they wanted those stories represented in the book. The survivor stories in the book illustrate the various ways in which these survivors had navigated and, and really still are navigating their way along the path of recovery and finding Joy and and fruitfulness on their journeys. So I I took each of these stories and then I also created a guide that went with each of the stories to give some some concrete strategies for readers to use based on what each of these survivors I worked with found to have helped them to have helped them. And it was it was amazing how different each survivor's story and approach to recovery really was. And I think through the book, I wanted to showcase the fact that recovery is not going to look the same for everyone. So thinking about some of those survivors, for example, um, there was Amy who had to start loving herself and her body again. Uh, There was Rooney who had to connect with what he loved doing but was mocked for. Alison's story I found particularly interesting as she had to develop a passion again for those things she dreamed about as a child but were off limits to her for so long. What this book does and what it shows is uh, that what works for one person does not necessarily work for another. Then it is okay to try different things and not to give up.
0: Thank you so much for that, Diane. I think that feeds so nicely into Our discussion about what survivors can do to support their long-term recovery beyond therapy or outside of the traditional therapeutic approaches. You've touched upon so many helpful things already. One thing that's often included in survivor recovery programs in the domestic violence and the human trafficking fields, for example, is supporting survivors to be involved in creative activities or hobbies such as sewing groups, cooking classes, learning musical instruments. But this is something that can also be used by survivors in navigating their recovery in an everyday kind of way.
2: Right, and criticism and limiting of a victim's hobbies, passions and pastimes is a fairly common strategy used by abusers in coercively controlling relationships to break down the victim's sense of self-worth and agency. So when we look at survivor definitions of recovery from the first study we discussed in this episode, it really makes sense that engaging in new hobbies and passions or reconnecting with those that have been lost through experiences of abuse would play a big role in what survivors saw as the gaining freedom part of recovery. Deanne, was this something that came out in the discussions you had with survivors for your book?
3: For so many of the survivors I've come in contact with, that has been a key factor. For many of them, the coercive relationship had become transactional and, and all about judgment. A coercively controlling partner in your life may have ridiculed the things you wanted to do, sabotaged your efforts to engage in activities that brought you joy and and took you into shared communities. And then over time, you may have found yourself slowly letting go of the things that brought you delight. And one of the best things you can do for recovery, I think, is to start doing the things you love to do simply because you love doing them. You need to do things purely for enjoyment, regardless of whether you're good at doing them or whether they will earn you recognition or or even admiration. You need to start doing things because they make you happy. So doing something that is just literally for you, your own benefit, and which has no value beyond just enjoyment and development of your own skills without prejudice, is vitally, vitally important for rebuilding who actually are beyond the context of that abusive dynamic. Taking up things that give you pleasure is actually, I believe, a vital part of reclaiming power over your own life. So yes, yes, definitely, I think that hobbies and passions are vitally important in rebuilding your sense of self-worth and self-esteem during long-term recovery. It's quite common to feel deflated and uninspired. After leaving an abusive relationship, which, which can make it really difficult to get clarity about what you actually enjoy doing. But, but I think it's vital that survivors don't let that discourage them. The important thing to remember is that, that you keep trying new things out until you find something that really sparks the joy. I mean, this is actually very challenging when you're still recovering from the abusive space you've just emerged from. Um, so you really need to give yourself the time and space to try new things or to ditch things that that aren't working, until you find what works for you uh, this month, this week, or or even just works for you for just today, and those could could all be completely different things, and that's also really really okay. Yeah,
1: I think uh, getting involved in different kinds of hobbies and activities is something that's so important for all of the reasons you've just pointed out. And it's definitely something that I, as you mentioned, Kitty, is seeing a lot of in different kinds of recovery programs. And I find that really interesting. And we definitely need some, some more research to be done around how those mechanisms actually work. So it's really interesting to me, but something I've been reading about more frequently at the moment is this relationship between reconnecting with nature and recovery. Now, researchers at the University of Essex ran a pilot study with survivors that suggests that being outdoors and getting back in touch with the natural world through activities like foraging can improve well-being and self-esteem. And there's a link to an article about this study that was published in the Guardian newspaper in our show notes if you want to read more about that. It all sounds a little bit esoteric almost, I think, um, this connection between nature and recovery and foraging. Uh, But there is some science behind it, actually. Uh, And research, other research that's also linked in our show notes suggests that things like forest bathing Uh, which is just a fancy term for taking short leisurely trips to a forest, can actually increase well-being um, and reduce stress. So that's something that I've definitely been reading more about. It seems to be something that's kind of gaining traction in the popular space. I'm not sure if anyone else has heard
3: of this or has any thoughts about it. Yes, that is definitely something that very much came up in my interactions with others. Uh, Consistently, there seems to be a common element of finding peace and well-being when spending time in nature or the outdoors, and it's something I myself have found. Um, There's most definitely an element that could be, I suppose, esoteric. Some describe it even as a spiritual connection, but um, I think for me, when I think about it, in a logical way, when you're in a space of feeling in danger on a daily basis, as you are in an abusive um, situation, when that danger is removed, the sheer relief and joy at being alive creates this kind of renewed sense of appreciation for the world around you. Uh, Suddenly, the sunset is more beautiful, the trees are more green, and the, bird song is so much sweeter at least that is how it feels for me personally and for some of those who I've met they have expressed a similar sentiment um another important thing that came up for the survivors who I've worked with is the idea that reconnecting with nature is a really um important way uh to slow down uh, and this is something that has been such such an important learning curve for me You see, looking back, I realized that coping mechanism which carried me through the many years I spent in an abusive relationship was my ability to be incredibly busy uh, all the time. We've already spoken about how in coercively controlling relationships, our self-worth is systematically eroded. Uh, We find ourselves chasing the love and acceptance that is missing from that relationship through Achievements and what we produce. And as a result, we form a core belief that our self worth comes from what we produce and achieve. And while this core belief is a lie, it also sets us up to use busyness in our attempt to prove that we are lovable and to boost our self worth. Abusive relationships also create a very deeply unpleasant everyday environment that that we desperately want to get away from. And when unhealthy busyness can easily become a defaulting coping mechanism for many people like myself. But through my recovery, I I've come to realize that all of this busyness was in reality an attempt to distance myself from the negation and 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 really the invalidation I was constantly being subjected to in my relationship. Part of what this behavior pattern delivered to me was the delusion that my life was great. Of course, in truth, I was unhappy, and of course, there were times when when what I was going through broke through these illusions I had created, and I felt desperate and, and scared. But but there was always some event that I could throw myself into to distract myself. You know, there was the festive season, there was a birthday, that exciting vacation I was planning, and before I knew it, the years just rolled on by, um, filled up with busyness and and productivity, and. I was hiding behind this facade of a of a perfect life, and there was me, you know, the bubbly, energetic, and and always positive hostess and achiever at the forefront. So, <laughs> I mean, I I even believed it myself. Um, um, and busyness as my own personal brand of unhealthy coping uh, did not actually even end when I left my abusive relationship because once I had taken the leap and left, that busyness continued. Um, Look, this was partly because I had no choice but to throw myself into rebuilding my life and, and making a living, earning a living whilst, whilst also creating some stability for my two, two young children. Um, but it was also a continuation of what, what had become a defense mechanism for so long. Uh, if I was busy, I had no time to think about what I had been through, uh, about what had been done to me and, if I was busy, I could keep going, and if I could keep going, then I had not been irrevocably damaged, right? Um, but doing any of the things that I was busying myself with was not making me feel more worthy. It was actually just making me feel more empty. Um, so to to really make progress on my healing journey, I realized that I needed to slow down and become more self-aware, Um that this would only happen when I had the space and time to be still and and quiet, when I wasn't being busy. And, and for this, I found that reconnecting with nature through gardening and taking walks in parks has been a powerful way to slow down and uh, address my unhealthy busyness. Uh, taking those still moments out in nature seriously has actually allowed me to, to get back in touch with myself. And to hold space for uncomfortable feelings and to ultimately process my trauma. So in that way, I do think there are a lot of ways that that getting into nature, which could even just be hanging out with some pot plants in your room, um, is a way to give yourself time and space that you really need to slow down and connect with something that doesn't make you busy in that that super unhealthy way. And you should do some of the important healing work you need to do.
1: Thanks, Deanne. I think that's um really brings a a kind of human perspective to what I was reading and in, in some of that research about reconnecting with nature and grounds it a little bit, maybe for me. I mean, we've had so many insights from you,
0: Deanne, about the individual ways that trauma is experienced but also the individual ways that people recover from trauma and one of the really interesting things about your book is that you you've interviewed 10 survivors and in your book Diane you share their stories not focusing on their experiences of abuse but focusing on how they've managed their recovery journeys themselves and what they've learned so they've sort of been telling you their story through this process. And I wonder, do you think that telling your story can in itself be part of recovery?
3: I would say yes and no. I think that telling your story, whether it's the story of what you went through or the story of how you're building a new life and how you got there, might be an important part of recovery for some people. But certainly for some of the people I met, they found that it was not necessary for them. So, whilst they shared their stories with me, it was not they felt part of their own recovery journey, but rather because they hoped it would assist or inspire others to find their own paths to recovery. But I suppose we can't know for sure. Perhaps the act of helping others is what is an element of recovery, in a way, too. But certainly for, for many people, sharing their story is an integral part of recovery. For me, it was. I needed to tell it and retell it and to consistently re-examine it to help me to make sense of what had happened and to understand how it had impacted and changed me. So yes, I do. for me, it is a part of recovery, telling my story. But for some people, I think that it's maybe a very personal journey. So they don't really want to share that in terms of using that as a tool for recovery. Thanks, Diane.
2: As we come to the end of this episode, it's time for In Their Own Words, a segment where we ask guests to tell us unprompted about anything relating to this topic that they think is important from their own knowledge, experience, or perspective, or just something that they simply want to share with you all. Let's hear what Deanne has to say in their own words.
3: I think there's two things that I'd like to just in closing mention, two big things which I don't think we talk about enough and that I'm really spending quite a lot of time sort of coming to understand myself and and perhaps be a project for the future working on looking at a little bit more. And those two things are anger and apathy. So it it is pretty common to experience extreme anger while you're in your relationship with someone. Who uses coercive controlling tactics, and especially after you leave that situation. I mean, that relationship robbed us of many things in life. We we actually have a right to be angry about that. But but at a point, we also have to recognize that anger is an extremely powerful emotion and it consumes all our thoughts and overshadows our actions. It's how we can lose years of life that could have been good, but it weren't. It impacts our current relationships. It impacts our dreams for the future, and it even impacts our ability to focus. Anger actually robs us of potential joy that could be filling the place of that anger. Anger also leaves us in an extremely negative state of mind. Not being able to step out of that space will hold back your recovery. It'll hold back your progress. So what I'm saying is you have the right to be angry and let that anger out, but but you also need to deal with that anger and move on at a point. And when I say move on, I mean move on to fill yourself with with more productive and fulfilling emotions than anger. Apathy is another important thing we should be talking about more. In coercively controlling and abusive relationships, it's often a major factor that we are constantly attacked and made to feel as if we can never do anything right or that we must somehow achieve unrealistic expectations. And despite our best efforts to fix the so-called mistakes that we have made and gain approval from our partner, we face ongoing and relentless criticism. And because of this, we start to internalize the belief that we ourselves are worthless. So as a protective mechanism, we become apathetic. We are backed into a corner where the only way to survive is to shut our emotions down and essentially stop caring about, about ourselves, about our dreams and even about our own joy, really having been through it myself, I fully understand the emotional turmoil that comes with being trapped in that post-abuse empathy cycle. You can find yourself feeling totally uninspired by anything, unmotivated to do anything, and really feeling like a hollow husk of a person. And then on top of that, there is shame and guilt about not being grateful and excited about your new life now that you're free of that abuser who is holding you and your life hostage for so long. There's also anxiety and, and fear about whether you're just a permanently damaged person and whether you'll ever be able to enjoy anything again. I mean, you want to be inspired by the world. You want to do the exciting and fun activities that make you feel good about yourself. And You want to make new happy memories, but when you have this cloud of apathy hanging over you, you just can't seem to figure out how to care enough about anything to do well, well, to do anything about it. But I think it's incredibly important for people to know that overcoming apathy is an important step in recovering from abuse, and it is possible. You definitely owe it to yourself to do this very important work. If I can do this, you can do this too. You you don't have to feel like you're just going through the motions every day you can actually be happy
0: you've been listening to pulling the strings if you'd like further information on anything we've discussed in this episode or if you have felt affected by anything you've heard please see our show notes for additional resources please do review and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps us to find more listeners and means you'll never miss an episode. Thank you to the Violence, Abuse and Mental Health Network for funding this podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. Until next time, take care.